break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 21st of June, 2022. Very happy to be back with you here on the show, and we've got plenty for you here on the show. We're going to be talking about Colombia's election over the weekend, where a new hope seems to be dawning in that country and across Latin America. But before we get to that very important story, we want to talk about the country of Ethiopia and the Horn of Africa, which appears to be slipping even further into conflict. Ethiopia has made it back into international news again over the weekend after reports have emerged of a massacre of hundreds, as many as 320 in reports so far of civilians who appear to have been targeted specifically because of their Amhara ethnicity. And the Amhara are the second largest ethnic group in Ethiopia. The massacre took place in the Oromo region, where the Amhara are a minority, and where the Oromo people, who are the largest ethnic group in Ethiopia, predominate. So far, most of the blame for the attack has been laid at the doorstep of the so-called Oromo Liberation Army, also referred to as the Shine faction of the Oromo Liberation Front, or OLF Shine. And the OLA has also been linked to recent attacks in the Gambella region that also killed dozens. Residents of the larger massacre told the media that they had been forced to hide in ditches and in the woods, among other places, to avoid being brutally killed. And one resident told the media that Amhara in this area were, quote, being killed like chickens. The OLA has denied responsibility for the attacks, and even more, they are claiming the attacks were committed by the Ethiopian government as a false flag of sorts to implicate the OLA and justify military operations against them. The context of these events is critically important, however, and it speaks to the challenges of bringing peace to Ethiopia and the broader Horn of Africa region. So we'll start there with the context, then swing back around to our current moment. Sadly, the issue of ethnic violence is not a new one in Ethiopia. Ethiopia is a nation state that contains 83 ethnic groups, and both the prehistory of Ethiopia and the history of the country since its founding involves a complex interplay of various ethnic groups and the class politics of feudal and semi-feudal relations. This history is far too complicated to sum up here, but what's important is that there are multiple different competing narratives both between and within various ethnic groups, and almost every point of disagreement behind various conflicts tends to be contested, in many cases highly so. And this point, the deeply contested nature of many of the facts and broader explanations of said facts, is really at the root of the conflict in Ethiopia and the horn that erupted at the end of 2020. Since that time, Ethiopia has been experiencing a war in the northern part of the country. The war was started by the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, that had governed the country from 1991 to 2018. The TPLF used various ethnic disputes in the country with Machiavellian skill, constructing a totally ethnicized politics of divide and conquer, the end result of which was they were able to maintain the top spot and direct much of Ethiopia's rapidly developing wealth over that time towards themselves and the various ethnic elite structures that they constructed. 
And ultimately, that policy backfired and led to their downfall in 2018. Starting in 2012, various religious and national groups launched waves of huge mass protests that destabilized the regime and led, as we mentioned in 2018, to forces within the TPLF's own governing coalition, led by Abiy Ahmed, the current prime minister, who is from the Oromo ethnic group, to sideline the TPLF leadership and push them out of power. In 2020, the TPLF launched its own insurgent war to try to bring down Ahmed and restore themselves to power. And to date, that war has led to tens of thousands of deaths and tens of millions of refugees and massive destruction of critical infrastructure and war crimes. Clearly, one fact the TPLF was banking on, in terms of their ability to win, was the country falling apart over various ethnic differences into a multi-sided civil war where they would be able to build the most powerful coalition and seize power for themselves. And this is the context for the massacre that happened recently. The OLA is allied with the TPLF, and since the war has started, has carried out a range of similar-style killings, which combined with the TPLF strategy of using sleeper cells embedded in various multi-ethnic areas, were clearly a designed war aim, that is, to increase the level of mistrust between peoples to the greatest degree possible. Which brings us back to our current moment. The TPLF has effectively lost the war, and recently talks to negotiate between the TPLF and the government, while unconfirmed, are very much in the air. The likelihood, however, of reaching an agreement appears very low because the TPLF seems committed to maximal positions that would be hard for the government to agree to. The only thing that could really turn things around for the TPLF would be a splintering of the coalition opposing them, which consisted of a large part of the population, whatever other differences they may have had. And this massacre that has taken place of the Amhara in the Oromia region hits right at a key lake. The massacre hits directly at a critique among some Amhara that Abiy Ahmed is a hardcore Romo nationalist who has had a long-term secret plan to destroy the Amhara for past grievances. And given that Abiy Ahmed's government has recently also launched a crackdown on thousands of Amhara activists, including some who fought bravely against the TPLF, without due process in many cases and without much of an explanation, only adds to that perception. Further, the other charge against Ahmed, that he's a crypto-Amhara supremacist who is using the Oromo identity to or is using his Oromo identity to further the national oppression of Oromo people, is likely to be further fueled if the OLA can say, well, any security actions taken against them for the recent massacre are really just a cover-up for the true agenda. So functionally, despite OLA denials, it's easy to see how the TPLF and the OLA are by far the biggest beneficiaries of this massacre, since the main result so far is that the forces allied against them are, to some degree, splintering. And to that, we have to add one more element. In the past month or so, a range of media attacks have begun in the so-called international media on Eritrea, focusing in closely on the idea that A, there's a major rift between the Ethiopian and Eritrean governments, and that B, Eritrea is forming some sort of sectarian bloc with Amhara leaders to try to seize control of the country. Now, needless to say, these are totally fact-free statements, but they do all add up to a narrative that has been emerging in the international media and also is promoted by TPLF supporters that Abiy Ahmed is more or less just a puppet of Eritrea who, for his own personal gain, is using force rather than try to negotiate. Notably, the OLA and the TPLF have been aiming more and more of their rhetoric at Eritrea as of late to obviously reinforce this narrative. And in this narrative, Abi appears as just as bad or worse than the TPLF and essentially controlled by another country. And by that logic, then, the result should be that the international community should put pressure through sanctions, which the U.S., by the way, is already using against Ethiopia and Eritrea, and that this same quote-unquote international community should be using these various forms of sanction and coercion to force Abiy Ahmed and the Ethiopian government to negotiate on the basis that the TPLF wants, which ultimately is that they be given a huge amount of power that the majority of Ethiopian people clearly do not want them to have. 
What is critical, absolutely critical, however, is to note that Ethiopia is not actually in a state of civil war yet. And despite a range of issues, the vast majority of people are clearly not looking to solve their problems through war, which is exactly why the TPLF and their allies are doing everything possible to stoke a conflict which will allow them to emerge victorious. This, however, raises significant issues around the anti-TPLF coalition in and of itself and whether that can be the basis for a new political dispensation in Ethiopia and the Horn more broadly. Clearly, there are key questions not being answered by the Ethiopian government about why many of their security efforts have been, according to the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission, in contravention to Ethiopia's own constitution and normal conceptions of due process rights. The reality is, whatever the veracity of the motives that they're stating, it can only serve to breed serious mistrust to be done in the fashion that's been done so far. To avoid deeper conflict in Ethiopia is going to take quite a bit of, yes, dialogue, but also a real reckoning. And for that to happen peacefully, it requires a keen alertness to all the bad faith actors from the U.S. to the TPLF who prefer to stoke disunity, but it also requires good faith efforts from all those who claim to want a peaceful future for the nation and the region. On Sunday, Colombia had a political earthquake with the left-leaning presidential candidate Gustavo Petro emerging victorious to become the first leftist president in the nation's history. Francia Marquez, Petro's running mate and a longtime activist and organizer, became the first ever black vice president in the history of Colombia. Petro Marquez gained 11.2 million votes, more than any other winning presidential ticket this century, and with nearly a 60% turnout, which for Colombia is quite high. Petro and Marquez ran on a ticket that saw almost all of the various left-leaning parties in the country unite, calling themselves the Historic Pact. The pact was based more or less on the idea that Colombia needed to turn the page on its long history of right-wing neoliberal rule that has produced a tremendous amount of poverty and violence. For instance, nearly 40% of the population lives on less than $5.50 a day. Since 2008, the ranks of those in extreme poverty grew by 1.1 million. These brutal conditions had led to a massive protest movement in 2021, which has become known as the quote-unquote national strike. The outgoing government of Ivan Duque had answered the calls of protesters with extreme violence then, killing over 80 people. It also saw 1,832 arbitrary detentions, 83 eye injuries, 28 victims of sexual violence, and a total of 3,486 victims of various forms of police violence. The victory of the historic pact then represents, in a sense, the continuation of this broad uprising in demand for change. And further, when one looks at the election results, it's clear that a massive turnout amongst Afro-Colombians and the indigenous communities long marginalized in Colombia powered the victory of the pact in a major way. Petro and Marquez centered their appeal on a program that, perhaps compared to, say, Venezuela or Cuba, could be considered moderate, but which would be a big change for Colombia. First and foremost, moving away from oil extraction towards an economy based on the production of food, tourism, and other more sustainable industries. Relatedly, they are also proposing a massive land reform process, higher taxes on a few thousand of the wealthiest oligarchs in Colombia, and a strong focus on all elements of combating climate change. Quite a bit of their program is also linked to a major acceleration of implementing the peace deal with the former FARC guerrillas, and that peace deal already contains many of the previously stated campaign goals in the broader road map of what the peace deal should be, and also continuing and pursuing more peace deals with groups like the National Liberation Army or ELN and other armed groups. Petro in his election night speech also called for a Latin American unity with, quote, no exclusions clearly indicating he disagrees with the stance of the Biden administration of constructing a cordon sanitaire around Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. There are now many unknowns and challenges. 
First, the far right in Colombia, which has a tremendous capacity for violence, may not accept their defeat lying down, having ruled the country for decades, and many people fear an explosion of violence that could derail any positive change. Second, Colombia has a range of structural challenges introduced by past governments, including a significant debt load, and the fact that very powerful entrenched forces have to be overcome to achieve basically all the stated goals of the historic pact, which also will have to deal with the divided Congress. Not to mention the United States has spent so many years backing far-right Colombian governments, it's unclear if they will go out of their way to derail Petro's government or seek to co-opt it. Nonetheless, millions of Colombians and large swaths of Latin America are celebrating the win as a major turn of the page. The end of one long period where Colombia was the core of all efforts to roll back any progressive reforms for working and poor people anywhere in the region. So while it may not be 100% clear what tomorrow will bring for Colombia or Latin America, it seems that once again that hope has triumphed and that the struggle for social change is back on the agenda. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom.